switching things up a little bit this morning uh, so that the folks who are usually a little bit late when they walk in, they're going to think they're a whole lot late uh, whenever they walk in the room this morning. If you got a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. We started a new series last week called The Story. As we look at over the course of these several weeks, the big storyline of the Bible, the overarching story that moves from Genesis to Revelation, telling one big story uh, of how God has created, men have fallen, God has redeemed, and God will one day renew all things. Last week, we started by digging into the story of creation, and we left off in, at the end of that message looking at how God had created all things good for his glory and our good. And so God created everything good. Everything worked properly. Everything functioned like it should. Everything was ordered appropriately. It worked correctly. We left off at the end of that message last week looking at that truth and that reality. And so this week as we open the scriptures together in Genesis chapter 3, we see something has fundamentally changed. In 1991, uh, there's a movie released called The Grand Canyon. It starred Danny Glover. Uh, it, it, it featured these two individuals. One was a, a, a lawyer in L.A., the other was a tow truck driver in L.A., and a friendship that, but, that kind of budded between them. But the opening scene of that movie uh, features uh, a, a stranded motorist who's in a neighborhood that had been ridden and shot through with all kinds of crime. And he finds himself, of course, in the proverbial dark alley all alone, uh, having called a tow truck, waiting for the tow truck to arrive. And as he waits for the tow truck to arrive because his car's broken down, um, some, some individuals who lived in that neighborhood or who terrorized that neighborhood show up and they're kind of some gang members and the gang leader walks up and begin to harass and try and rip the guy off and rob him. At that moment, the tow truck shows up and Danny Glover steps out, right? You think he's about to throw down on all these guys, but he walks over to them and he begins to hook up to the car. And as he begins to hook up to the car, he looks at the gang leader, he looks him square in the eyes, he says, I've got a favor to ask of you. Let me go my way here. This truck's my responsibility, and now that that car's hooked up to it, it's my responsibility too. And the gang leader looks at him, and he asks this question, he says, do you think that I'm stupid? Just answer that question first. And Simon, Danny Glover's character, responds, look, I don't know nothing about you. I don't know nothing about, you don't know nothing about me. I don't know if you're stupid or some kind of genius. All I know is that I need to get out of here and you got the gun. So I'm asking you for the second time, let me go my way here. And the gang leader looks at him and he says, I'm going to grant you that request. I'm going to grant you that favor. And I'm going to expect you to remember it if we ever meet again. But I got one question for you before I let you out of here. All I want to know is that are you respecting me, right? Um, or, or, uh, he says, are you respecting me as a, are you, are you, are you, I'm sorry, are you asking me as a sign of respect? Or are you asking me because I got the gun? To which Danny Glover's character, Simon, responds. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. It ain't supposed to work like this. I mean, maybe you don't know that yet. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without having to ask you if I can. This dude over here is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything, everything is supposed to be different than it is. And those words ring throughout the pages of human history. As you look from everything subsequent to Genesis chapter 3, everything forward, you could say everything is supposed to be different than it is. 
When you see what transpires, God makes the world, everything out of nothing. He calls it all into existence. He makes everything good. Everything is working properly within the God's defined boundaries. But something fundamental changes. There's a fundamental shift that takes place in Genesis chapter 3. And on the subsequent pages of human history, everything no longer works like it should. Everything is different. Eugene Peterson wrote about this reality, and he said this. He said, a catastrophe has occurred. We no longer live in continuity with our good beginning. We have been separated from it by a disaster. We are also, of course, separated from our good end. We are, in other words, in the middle of a mess. (laughs) And some of you see that all around you, and some of you may feel that within you. You're in the middle of a mess right now. When you look around at the world, you have this innate sense, right, when you look around at the world, that what you see isn't the way things are supposed to be. You see all kinds of breakdown, all kinds of chaos, all kinds of massive and monumental messes in your life, in personally, locally, nationally, and globally. Listen, I was watching the news uh, this week. I was at home for lunch eating a turkey sandwich uh, and uh, had, had a little bit of avocado on it as well, but eating a turkey sandwich and I was watching the, 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 the midday news and there was a story that came on as I, as I watched this story unfold, uh, I, I got a little sick to my stomach because it was, it was a story uh, about a, 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 the parents or the grandparents of a young child who had reported their daughter and her boyfriend to CPS with pictures of a bruised, bruised faces and busted lips of their grandchild. In other words, reported their daughter and her boyfriend to CPS for child abuse. And yet CPS take, took no action on the case. And eventually their granddaughter sustained injuries that she could not recover from and she died at the hands of her own mother and her boyfriend. And as they interviewed, as they interviewed these grandparents who were grieving because the people who were supposed to take action to help protect their granddaughter legally took no action upon the reporting of the abuse that was taking place in the home. And as they interviewed them in their home, they sat around their kitchen table, and on their kitchen table sat all these flowers, big massive bouquets of flowers, and right in the middle of those flowers was a small pink urn with butterflies all over it. And as as, as the camera panned to that image, I literally, literally gagged on on the turkey sandwich that I was eating. And my heart was screaming inside me, the world isn't supposed to work like this. A mom is supposed to care for, with deep affection, her children, keep and guard them and protect them, not abuse and kill them. When when CPS receives word of abuse taking place in a home, they're supposed to follow up on it and present the evidence to a judge who can make an order to remove that child from their home. The judge never saw the evidence that was submitted by the grandparents. The world is not supposed to work that way. You feel that, don't you? I feel that. We all feel that. Tomorrow in Greenville, Texas, at a Baptist church there off of Interstate 30, there'll be a funeral for a six-month-old child. A six-month-old child 
It was the, the, the nephew of a good friend of mine who was born six months ago with brain cancer, came out of the womb with brain cancer. And eventually the tumors consumed so much of his body that he died in his mother's arms. And they're going to gather tomorrow in Greenville, Texas, for a memorial service for this six-month-old child. It's one thing to gather for a 90-year-old who's lived a long life with great joy and is being welcomed into the arms of Jesus. It's another thing to gather for a six-month-old infant, a six-month-old infant who was born with brain cancer. The world is not supposed to work that way. We all have a sense of that in our hearts. When you look at the world around us and the sexual perversion that exists in our culture and how pervasive it is, when you see racism boiling over into racial tensions that would cause riots, whenever you see terrorism that causes people to be stricken with paralyzing fear, when you see the sex slave trade going on, not only in far removed distant lands, but also here at home in our backyard, when you look at broken homes that exist and mental illnesses that ravish people's minds, when you look at the mass shootings that take place on school campuses or at movie theaters or in government buildings, when you see devastating diseases like cancer or you see a 41-year-old man taken from his family after his, his, his daughter, right before his daughter turns five years old and just two weeks after his, his, his son is born, because of a, a, massive, a, a massive heart attack or a massive aneurysm or something along those lines or heart disease. When you see natural disasters, you see tornadoes rip through communities and landslides and earthquakes and hurricanes. When you see abused and abandoned children, when you see addicted and absent parents, when you see everything, everything around us is breaking down. And it makes you, 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 you feel it, don't you? The world is a, not supposed to work like this. Everything is supposed to be different. And one of the reasons that you and I have that feeling that everything is supposed to be different is because there was one day when it was. There was one day when it was. But something fundamentally has shifted. And we move from the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 to Genesis chapter 3, we find that fundamental shift. So if you've got a Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 to 7 together this morning. If you don't, it'll be on the screen for you as we read it. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 1, we find these words. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And we said last week, there's really no way, there's no way in a four-week series like what we're moving through right now to say everything that could be said from the text that we are looking at. So we want to follow a particular line to see how this big story continues to unfold throughout the scriptures. And so what we see in Genesis chapter 3, what we see is that there's a source, there's a cause, there's a root underneath that feeling that we all have, the feeling that we all have that the world is supposed to be different than it is. There is a first cause for that feeling that we feel in our hearts when we see these things unfold in the world around us. And the Bible says that the reason things don't work like they should, the worldview the scriptures give us in relationship to the reason the world doesn't work the way it was supposed to work is the fact that there is a point in human history in which sin entered into the world and you begin to see the breakdown that it causes. Now, whenever we think about sin, whenever we think about rebellion, whenever we think about um, these issues, oftentimes what you and I tend to think about is a view of sin that is very small. We tend to think of sin as the breaking of a rule. But in actuality, what you see throughout the Bible, what you see throughout the pages of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, is that sin is not just the violation of a command, but it's the violation of a relationship. It's the violation of a relationship. What you see is that sin, in essence, is spiritual adultery. It is spiritual adultery. I want you to I want to show you that from Genesis chapter three. But before you see that in Genesis chapter three, you got to go back to Genesis chapter two because in Genesis chapter two, God draws a boundary, doesn't He? He says, "You shall have of all the trees to eat, except for this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God definitely draws a line, creates a boundary. And whenever most of us look at that, we tend to think of sin only in judicial terms. That God drew a boundary, that God created a rule, that God had a parameter, and that our first parents crossed over it. They violated, they broke that rule. And so you see in Genesis chapter 3 that they actually take of the fruit and they eat it. And so whenever we think of this sin as only in judicial terms, when we think of it only as the breaking of a rule, what it can often do many times is lead us to a view of a sin and righteousness that tends to lead us toward uh, what you might call legalism. In other words, thinking that I'm going to climb the ladder up to God, I'm going to obey all the rules and be in good standing with him. If, the, if sin is only the breaking of a rule, then if you keep all the rules, then you're, really, you're, you're good, man, you're in. And so when we have that particular view of sin, it it tends to to create very moralistic and very legalistic types of individuals who then want to impose their rules on everyone else who are around them as well. And sometimes they like to make up rules that don't actually exist in the Bible and then say, hey, you've got to obey all these rules plus the ones that I made up and then, then you're in with God. Right? When you see sin only as the breaking of a rule, it tends to lead toward legalism. Sin is absolutely the breaking of a rule. It's the violation of a command, but it is so much more than that. It's much deeper than that. It's more treacherous than that. Because sin, you see it here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. If you understand it relationally, it's the violation or the betrayal of a relationship. So here's what you have to understand is that before Eve, before Adam, before our first parents ever took of the fruit and ate it, there was something inherently in their hearts that caused them to question whether or not God was really good. So as the psalmist says, 
Or as David writes, taste and see that the, that, that the Lord is good. What our first parents do in the garden is they want to taste and see if the Lord is good. If he's good. Because there is a sense of, there's a sense in which they don't trust that what God has put out of bounds for them is out of bounds for their good. But if they could actually know, in fact, the text tells us in chapter three, verse six, that whenever she takes of the fruit, she saw, one of the reasons she took of it is because she saw that the tree was desired to make one wise. In other words, that she could be like God, knowing good from evil. She could be wise. She could be wise in her own eyes, not having to trust the wisdom of God, but she could be wise. She could put herself in the position of God. She could elevate herself above God or on par with God. And that is the essence of sin. That is the essence of sin. The essence of sin is the elevation of ourselves in a very prideful position and the unfaithful exchange of the God for a God. And most often that a God is this God. It's ourselves. And what we wind up doing is we wind up committing what the Bible calls over and over and over again spiritual adultery or infidelity. Because we betray the loving, trusting relationship with our good creator. In other words, we exchange his good design for our desires. And the Bible calls that spiritual adultery. In fact, that's one of the things that you see throughout, sweeping throughout the Old Testament, particularly in places like Jeremiah chapter 3, in verses 6 to 9. I want you to hear this text as the prophet speaks to God's people. He says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, God's people? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. In other words, all these created things, the idols fashioned out of rock and wood, stone and tree, she went up and she spread her skirt to them. And she played the whore with them. She betrayed her loving husband who had established covenant with her for relationships with the gods of the nations. It is spiritual adultery. You see it all across the pages of the Bible. So sin is not just the breaking of a rule. It is the betrayal of a relationship in which you look at the God who has created you and entered into covenant with you and you say to him, you are not good enough. You are not satisfying enough. I don't trust your wisdom. I need to find out for myself if you're actually good. I don't want to taste and see that you are good. I want to taste all these other things to see if you are really better than them. If you're really more satisfying than them. If I can really find more security in you than I, in them than I can in you. So, you, so sin, in essence, is giving your highest allegiance and deepest affection to something or someone other than God. 
Sin is deriving your meaning and purpose in life from something or someone other than God. Sin is a desperate lust and a deep love for something or someone other than God. It's building your life and identity on something or someone other than God. It's craving with greater intensity, cultivating deeper intimacy, and chasing after with more inflamed passions someone or something other than God. It's more than the breaking of a rule. The reason you break the rule is because there is a a longing for intimacy in here. There was a longing for intensity in here. There's a passion in here. There's a quest for meaning and purpose in here. You want to be wise. You want to know for yourself. And in so doing, you elevate yourself on par with or above God. That is the essence of sin. That is the essence of sin. And you can trace this. You can trace it throughout the Bible. You can trace it, trace it throughout human history. You can trace it throughout the natural order and see its effects and consequences there. And you can trace it throughout your own personal life. And that's what I want to do with the rest of the time that we have together this morning. I want to trace it a little bit. Because one of the things I want us to see in this series is how the Bible fits together a little bit. That it's not these disjointed stories that somebody collected and put into a book. But it's telling one big story across its pages. So let's look, first of all, let's trace it through the Bible. A brief survey of the Bible reveals a line of humanity's depravity across its pages. In Genesis chapter 3, you see that God creates, or before that, Genesis, God creates work in Genesis chapter 2. He puts the man in the garden and says, cultivate it and work it. And he does, and things are good. But in Genesis chapter 3, whenever sin enters into the world, the curse ensues. And what happens is that work becomes painful. And where there was once great fruit, now there are thorns and thistles that he's trying to work through. So what happens for you and I is that something God intended to be good gets distorted and we see it as a necessary evil many times in our lives. We see our vocations and our jobs as something that we tolerate in order to do the things that we really want to do with our lives. We don't see our vocations as something that we are leveraging to add value to other people, but we are leveraging merely to increase our net worth. So work gets distorted. The husband-wife relationship gets distorted. In Genesis 3, what God intended to be a beautiful complementary relationship between husband and wife gets twisted into male domination and female manipulation, both in an attempt to control the other. In fact, by the end of Genesis chapter 3, you find the man naming the woman. That's not a very loving act in the ancient world because to name someone means that you, get, got, you had authority over them to the degree that you could control and dictate exactly what they did and where they went. You were their possession if you named someone or something. So, by, so this that God created begins to dissolve. In the next eight chapters, you begin to see the breakdown of the family. In Genesis 4, you have the very first murder in human history as one brother raises a knife and slays the other, his own flesh and blood. By the time you get to Genesis 6, things have eroded to such a degree that God sends a massive flood to wipe out humanity and start over with one family that he would select from them and put on a big boat along with animals to preserve what he had created. By Genesis 11, you have people exalting themselves to such a degree by building a stairway to heaven. In Genesis chapter 11, that God comes down to scatter them by confusing their languages. Genesis 11 is the high point of human sin at this point in the story of the Bible. They're gonna rise rise up to God and God says, oh yeah, (laughs) I 
Even at the top of your tower, I still have to come down to get to you. So Genesis continues to unfold with the story of a family that God chooses to be his from the families of all the earth. And in Genesis chapter 12, you've got the patriarch of that family lying about the identity of his wife and telling the Egyptians she was his sister because he thought that they thought that they would think that she was really good looking. So he was trying to save his skin. In Genesis chapter 27, you have the younger of two brothers clothing himself like his older brother and going into his dying father to deceive his father into blessing him. In Genesis 37, you have jealousy boil over within a family to such a degree that 11 brothers strip and sell one brother to a traveling band of Midianite traders into Egypt as Joseph is sent off away from his family. In Genesis 39, you have the brother who was sold falsely accused and imprisoned in Egypt. You see how everything begins to erode when sin enters into the world. There's a, everything begins to break down. And so Israel winds up in Egypt and God comes to Moses and he says, I want to raise you up and go deliver my people from the slavery and bondage. And he does and he brings them out. But no sooner does he deliver them than in Exodus chapter 32, they find themselves at the foot of the mountain. And while Moses is up receiving the law from God, the commandments from God, the rest of Israel is down at the bottom of the mountain having a massive party, just throwing down with all kinds of gold and silver, melting it down, building statues and idols and saying, here, Israel, this calf right here, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Spiritual adultery, idolatry taking place at the very, on the very heels of their redemption from Egypt. In Leviticus, you have the giving of the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. In Numbers, you have a long list of families and genealogies that compose the people that God has brought out of slavery in Egypt. And you also see in Numbers their failure to trust him in the fact that they would not go into the land that is filled with giants. They were only, they were only thinking what, about what they could do, not about what God could do. They were, they were gauging their circumstances on the basis of what they saw with their own eyes and not what God was able to do. In Deuteronomy, you have Moses' deathbed sermon. In Joshua, you have the Israelite army at one point struck down because someone took the spoil of victory from a previous battle that was supposed to be devoted to destruction. And the repeated refrain in the book of Judges, man, by the time you get to the book of Judges, things are just wheels off. I mean, completely wheels off. And this is where some of you find yourself right now. Man, I would love just to camp out here for probably the next 45 days, <laughs> like straight. But in the repeated refrain in the book of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, there was no source of objective authority. All authority became subjective and everyone was doing what was right to them. See, what had happened, what had happened was, right, you go back the Genesis chapter three, when our first parents fall, they realize they were naked. What is the first movement they do? They gather leaves to cover themselves and conceal their shame. By the time you get to Judges, there's like the shame meter is broken. The shame gauge is broken and it's broken in some of your lives right now as well. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. By the time you get to the age of the kings and the prophets, you have rampant idolatry, 
rampant idolatry. You have some kings leading the people in worship of false gods, some kings bringing reform, some prophets affirming the infidelity of God's people, others opposing the infidelity and adultery of God's people. And if you're wondering how the, all those books there in the Old Testament fit together, here's how it is. You got Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. You got these historical books that tell the story of the prophets that God raises up, the stories of the kings that God raises up, the priests who were operating in Israel's days. You got all those stories there, and then you got the prophetic books just after that, and like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all those prophets who come after them, the major and minor prophets. Those prophets were prophesying in conjunction with the reigns of these kings in the, in the nation of Israel. And then once you had the divided kings, kingdom. You had some people in the north and some people in the south. You had Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And you had prophets to those kingdoms and those kings. But by the time you get to those, that age of the kings and prophets, there's idolatry everywhere in Israel amongst God's people. They're giving their hearts to, their affections to, their allegiance to all the gods of the other nations. Even the kings that brought reform Even under their rule, the quote-unquote high places were never torn down. You know what the high places were? The high places were were where the, the peoples of the other nations went to worship their gods. They were their altars. They were their temples. Here's, here's one particular God that Israel, the Israelites kept falling prey to and, and back into that cycle of idolatry and spiritual adultery with was, was Baal, the God of the Canaanites. And they were the, the, the God and goddess of fertility in the ancient world, Baal and Asherah. And you had these two gods, and they would worship them on the high places because what the, what the the ancient peoples believed was that Baal and Asherah were the gods in heaven, the gods and goddesses of fertility. And so what, what, what you needed them to do in heaven was to consummate their relationship and come together, right? So they got to hook up in heaven in order to scatter their seed upon the earth so that the earth would be fertile and the ground would produce crops and it would be fruitful and there'd be food to eat, Right? So how do you get these gods in the heavens to come together and consummate their relationship and rain down the fertility on the earth? Well, you go to the highest point around you and you climb that hill and you build an altar and you enact on earth what you want to see them do in heaven. And so you had all these temple prostitutes who who their job, their job, right? And, and, And... I don't even know if I can say that. Their job, like they're, they're, they're the first porn stars in the history of the world because their job was to sit at the, at, the, at the temples and have sex with those who came to the temples to worship so that Baal and Asherah in the heavens would consummate and rain down upon the earth. And you find it over and over and over again in Israel's history is that whenever droughts came, whenever famines came, what would they do? They weren't crying out to the God whom in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 spoke everything, everything out of nothing. And if God can speak everything out of nothing, as David read earlier, is there anything that's too hard for him? Can he not bring rain upon the earth? And yet they didn't trust that he could. Israel was like many of us these days. They were like equal opportunity worshipers. Right? Wherever, that we, wherever we might find a little bit of an advantage, a little bit of favor, a little bit of security, a little bit of significance, we're going to go and spread our skirt to the God, all those gods. And as Jeremiah says, play the whore with the gods of the other nations by giving our hearts to them 
and our, our, our trust to them. And even, um, under, even under the greatest kings, the high places in Israel were not torn down, but Israel continued to commit spiritual adultery. You get to the prophets, and the prophets are speaking into this dynamic. And you've got Isaiah, and Isaiah, you have the people of God giving lip service to God. Right, they're going through all the rituals. They're showing up in church and they're raising their hands and they're singing, holy, holy, holy. And they're doing every, they're, they're, they're maybe even be putting offerings in the boxes back there. They're opening their Bible. They're underlining passages. They're tweeting on, on, on Twitter. I, I was about to say tweeting on Instagram, but you don't do that. They're tweeting on Twitter. They're, they're hashtagging on Instagram. They're posting on Facebook all the good, glorious things that God's teaching them. But then in conjunction with that, right, they're not living they're not living as God's people. They're giving lip service to God. And yet their lives and their hearts are far, far from him. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you have the people of God trusting in political alliances rather than the sovereign, almighty, majestic king of all creation. And as a result of that in Ezekiel, you have the glory of God departing from the temple. God says, you want to trust in the nations to come save you and not me? Well, you don't need me anymore. I'll give you a little bit of a taste of what it would be like if I was, wasn't here. And then ultimately Israel and Judah both end up in exile. In foreign nations ruled by foreign kings. In Hosea, you have God commanding his prophet to marry a prostitute is what is perhaps the greatest object lesson in human history. Does you want to understand what it's like to love a people who don't love you? You want to understand what it's like to give your heart to those who give their heart to another? Hosea, go marry a prostitute. Then you and the nation will understand. In Amos, you have God decrying the injustice and oppression of the needy amongst God's people in Israel. In Jonah, you have the collective consciousness of a nation exposed in one person and the prophet. How they weren't loving their enemies, but hating them. As Jonah comes to the end of that little book and says, the reason I didn't want to go to Nineveh is because I knew God. I knew that if they repented, that you would relent and not bring disaster upon them. All across the pages of the Old Testament. You have idolatry, spiritual adultery. You have sin. You have people trusting in themselves as opposed to trusting in God. You have people trusting in the gods of the nations as opposed to in the God who has created them and redeemed them out of slavery and bondage and captivity in Egypt. See, sin is so much more than the breaking of a rule. It is the violation of a relationship. And you can trace that line. It extends out from biblical history into the rest of history. Into the rest of history. That means the Bible essentially gives us a lens through which to interpret everything that happens around us. And you can see across the pages of human history, you can see the wars, you can see the genocides, you can see the ethnic cleansing, all in an idolatrous pursuit of power and control for a person or a group of people. In 1937, H.G. Wells 
wrote in a short history of the world, he says this. He says, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace and that our children will live in a world made more splendid than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What man has done, the little triumph of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. So in 1937, he writes these words. He says, listen, the things that humanity has been able to achieve up to this point pale in comparison to everything that they're going to achieve as history continues to unfold, as the pages continue to be written. He says, all the, all the advancements, all, all, all the advances of modern medicine, all the advances of technology, all the advances, they pale in comparison to the glorious utopic future that lies on our horizon. And then nine short years later in 1946, in a little work called A Mind at the End of Its Tether, he writes these words. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished, has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. What happened between 1937 and 1946? A little skirmish historians called World War II. Concentration camps, gas chambers, the Holocaust, untold obliteration of an entire continent, countless numbers of lives lost. Why? Because because a person and a people We're committing spiritual adultery, idolatry, and the pursuit of an identity apart from God. A meaning and a purpose in life apart from God. The quest for power and control. So when you look at all, all of the most heartbreaking and horrendous actions in human history, they emerge, they emerge from the same root as Genesis chapter 3. You can see it in the natural order as well. You look around at creation, you go, man, things are not supposed to work that way. Several weeks, several, well, not weeks ago, actually days ago, I was riding with my daughter in the back seat of my truck, and this is just like, she's five years old, right? So we have these great, deep theological conversations about Hello Kitty and Barbies and favorite colors, and all these things, right? And then she turns the corner on me, and she moves into the realm of deep theology, and she says, Daddy, why did God send the tornado? And, and I'm, I'm sitting there in silence in the front seat, driving along, going... How do I respond to a five-year-old who's asking about the origins of natural evil? And it hit me. Well, baby, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that even 
that, that, that the world doesn't work the way that it should. And that extends even to the natural order, to creation, to the rocks and the trees and the birds and the plants and the storms and the sky and the earthquakes. The world doesn't work the way that it should. In fact, the Bible tells us, Sarah, that God will one day renew all things and that creation itself in Romans chapter 8 is longing the same way that you long for your birthday and for Christmas, those great high points in your life right now, the same way that you long for them, that creation is waiting for the day in which it will be free from the effects of the fall. And she goes, okay. <laughs> you see it all around us. But you not only see it on the pages of the Bible, and you not only see it on the pages of human history, you not only see it in the natural order, but listen. And I want some of you to tune in with me for the next five minutes as we finish, as we land the plane here. And then we're going to sing together. But you also see it personally in your lives. You see it personally in your lives as well. I can remember when Sarah was about two years old, and she would be playing in the house, running from room to room, and she would have a little, shop, a little shopping cart, a little pink and purple shopping cart which she was pushing around from her room to the playroom to the living room to our bedroom, our bathroom. There's no place that you could escape from her shopping. So she was everywhere around the house. And so she would pick her favorite little stuffed animal or toy. Like it would go from the rabbit you know, to this doll, to this monkey, uh, you know, to... to uh, you know, the dog, whatever it was, and she would put it in the shopping cart, and she would switch, literally, sometimes it seemed like minute to minute to minute to minute, which doll she was pushing around in the shopping cart as they did their errands across the house, or which doll that she wanted to cuddle with at night from, day, from, from nap time to evening to the next morning, right? Sometimes she'd go to bed with one in her arm, wake up with the, the next morning with a different one in her arm, right? Because her heart would shift so quickly it would turn so quickly and its affections would, would be, missed, be directed in a different direction so quickly. But you know what? As I thought about it, about her as a small two-year-old child or how fickle her heart was when it came to the selection of her doll that she was going to play with, it was a sobering wake-up call to me about how oftentimes my heart is so fickle in my affections and the lovers that I give them to as well. The gods that I give my heart to as well. So how do you know? How do you know if right now, sitting in this room, that personally in your life, that you've given your heart to another lover, that you've given your heart to another God, that you've given your heart to a competing affection that you think is going to provide you security, that you think is going to provide you significance, that you think is going to provide you satisfaction, that you think is going to fill that gaping wound that exists deep within your soul. How do you know if you're trying to find that somewhere other than the God who has created you? Let me give you a couple of things, a couple of benchmarks. First one is this. One of the ways that you know that you're giving your heart to another lover other than God is because other lovers or idols, they always overpromise and underdeliver. 
Always. Always. If you were unhappy, listen, if you were unhappy before you built the house, you will be unhappy with a larger mortgage. If you were unhappy before you got the job, you will be unhappy with greater responsibilities. If you were unhappy, if you were unhappy before you had a child, you will now be unhappy as a parent. If you were unhappy and dissatisfied before you had the relationship, you will make that relationship miserable for yourself and for them. You see, some of us are searching so desperately for an idol to satisfy us. If you were unsatisfied before any of these things came, you will be as dissatisfied even now that they are present in your life. Do you find yourself thinking or believing that if you could get that promotion, take that vacation, buy that land, find that relationship, that you would be so much happier and satisfied as you were before? You see, idols always overpromise and always underdeliver. You will, they will promise you the moon and deliver you a speck of dust. This is why some of us are workaholics because we think that we're going to find our meaning and significance in our vocations. And this is why, on the flip side, some of us are work avoiders. <laughs> some of us give ourselves to our work, and some of us give nothing to our work, because we think that we're going to find satisfaction either in freeing ourselves up from the responsibility of work or finding our identity fully in it. It overpromises and underdelivers. Idols promise freedom and security, but they only deliver bondage and insecurity. This is why some of you find yourself to be so insecure right now. To whether every passing comment that somebody makes, you take it personally and offensive because you have no tether of security, no foundation of security in your life because you're looking for other people's opinion of you to provide the security for you that your heart desperately longs for. <laughs> And so you're so insecure, you can't take criticism or even a compliment very well. This is why some of us are so dissatisfied. Some of us are so unstable. You see, like Israel, our idols may satisfy us for a season, but they will ultimately break our hearts. Some of you think that if you could be free from all the restrictions that God puts on your life, then you would find absolute joy and happiness. But like country music art singer and songwriter Chris Stapleton says in his song, The Parachute, he says, falling feels like flying till you hit the ground. Falling, man, absolutely, that free fall is amazing, right? You can scream to the top of your lungs, And it feels like you're flying until the immovable force called the ground <laughs> doesn't move. Bang. Idols always overpromise and underdeliver. Also, idols lead us to cross boundaries to get them or keep them. 
They will lead us to cross boundaries to get them or keep them. One of the ways that you know if you've gotten, given your heart to an idol and are committing spiritual adultery right now is if there's no limit to which you would go to get them or keep them. No limit to which you would go. See, some of you have drawn lines in your past. You're like, we're not going to take on, you know, this unreasonable amount of debt. And then you know, Ford releases, you know, the brand new 2017 models. And you're like, well, maybe we can raise that, that threshold up to here, from here. Right? Students, some of you in dating relationships, you may have drawn a boundary at some point in your life. You say, I'm not going to cross that line. But in order to get or keep that relationship, you, 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 go, you, you keep moving the line and saying, I, I, I'm gonna, I, this will make me happy. I'm going to keep moving the line in order to hang on to those individuals. See, some of us, some of us, we have no boundaries any longer because we kept the line. Just, it's, 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 a, it's not a stationary line. It's a moving target for us. My heart breaks for some of you because you keep moving the line in some areas of your life. They always overpromise and underdeliver. They always lead you to cross boundaries to get or keep them. Is that where you find yourself this morning? Do you find your heart being given to something or someone other than the good God who has created you? Some of you, that's exactly where you find yourself this morning. And you know what the solution is? I don't want to give away too much of next week, but I'm going to tell you briefly what the solution is. Here's the solution. The solution for a deceitful and sick heart is a new one. It's a new one. <laughs> it's not just to renovate the one that you've got with more parameters and more boundaries, but a new one. So that in Ezekiel chapter 36, when God says, what I'm going to do, because Israel, you've been unable to continue to give your affections to me, but you give them away to everyone else. So Israel, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take out, I'm going to do heart transplant surgery. I'm going to take out your heart of flesh, or your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. One that wants to obey me. One that, that longs to obey me. I'm going to write my word on your hearts, not just these tablets of stone any longer. And if you find yourself that your heart is sick and you've been giving it away to everyone and everything other than God, God this morning stands ready to give you a new one. To give you a new one. You see, we like John. We like John. At the end of his, his little epistle, or in the middle of his little epistle, at the end of the New Testament, he says this. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out as a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, there's not a single person in this room this morning who can say, listen, I'm exempt from that whole sin thing. I'm exempt from that whole spiritual adultery thing. I don't have any idols. Not a single one of us. But I want you to know something, that in between those two verses is verse 9 of 1 John, where John writes these words, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, what God has done is he's made a way for you and I to come clean about our other lovers in a way that he might receive us as his bride. 
and give us a new heart so that we find ourselves now doing what we most want to do. And the way that he's done that is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, God put the first man in a garden and said, obey me about the tree. That didn't turn out real well. And so God put the second Adam in another garden and said, obey me about the tree. And he did. All the way to his death. So that if you and I would confess our sins and our other lovers, that he would be faithful and just to receive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning recognizing that oftentimes our lives look more like those in the book of Judges. We look like those who are doing what is right in our own eyes, thinking that we're going to find significant satisfaction or security in our own wisdom and not entrusting ourselves to your wisdom. We think that where we're really going to come alive is in that new relationship and departing from the spouse that we've been in covenant with for 10 years. We think where we're really going to come alive and find true life and meaning is in giving ourselves away with multiple partners to fill a hole in our hearts that only you are able to with your Holy Spirit who would come and take residence. We find ourselves thinking by our own wisdom that if we could just somehow, if we could just somehow get that job, that promotion, those possessions, no matter what ceiling or threshold of debt that we would incur and how crippling that might be, because our hearts are running and chasing and lusting and panting after a sense of satisfaction and security in anything and everything other than you. This is why, Father, some of us are so distraught and depressed in this room this morning because we've never found our home for our hearts. Father, I pray that there be those in here this morning who that is them. I pray, Father, that you, by your grace, that you would show them it would bring conviction of their sin, but also as deep a conviction of your love and grace for them as the good God who's created them and desires relationship with them. So much so that he put his, his, the second Adam, his son, in the garden and said, obey me about the tree, and your son did. He did. Fathers, we enter into a time of of corporate and personal confession this morning. I pray, God, that we would find ourselves in a place where we know we can be transparent with you and find you to be one who would receive us by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.